Warning, if you're not a fan of language that packs a punch, now's the time to tune out. But if you're ready for some real talk, stick around and enjoy the ride. All right. And so today I'm so excited to be talking. That sounds weird. I shouldn't start saying I'm so excited to be talking about racism. In the <laughs> okay. Let me, let me rephrase it. I'm I can't wait to talk to about this super insightful- painful thing. <laughs> what, I, what, I, what I should say is I'm excited to be having these insightful conversations mm, about mm-hmm. the topic racism sure, yeah. in the workplace it's mm-hmm. stuff we don't talk about enough we need to talk about it and we yeah. really need to normalize having these kinds of conversations because otherwise like you're just dealing with it on your own and who needs that i don't want that toxicity yeah. inside me so right. yeah no that's where white supremacy flourishes is in this like secrecy and nobody talks about it and you just assume you've misread the situation or whatever like no that's white 100%, supremacy. you're right whacking you upside your head yeah yeah exactly. I'm, I'm also very um just in awe of today's guest um i'm so glad you found her on the internet and she agreed to, to to be friends with us um so our guest today is dr tolu Wuraola, and she is um a diversity equity and inclusion expert consultant um attorney fantastically wonderful a beautiful person i mean amazing her skin was just like glowing glowing like the mood okay. so beautiful yes we'll have to so, have a part two where we ask her for her skincare regimen <laughs> right like what is this night serum what is happening here we need to know i just love the fact that in our day and age mm-hmm. you can meet someone on the internet and have such an amazing connection and never mm-hmm. meet them in person oh, so totally, this will be yeah. my first time talking with her in person so i love this i love it i'm very excited about it yes it's gonna be a great conversation i agree let's do it My name is Tramel D. Jones, and I am a strategic career coach. I am Bonnie Scott. I'm a licensed professional counselor in Texas. For women and marginalized communities, it work is hard. Especially at this point in the pandemic and in our lives. There is such a toxic workplace in most jobs. Or you're bringing your own trauma history and making decisions from that place. From the experiences that we're both having individually, now we get to join forces and help the world not have to go through those same pitfalls, right? We're going to do it with kindness and love for each other and all the women out there doing this hard stuff. Welcome to the Work and Wellness Podcast. believe that the first form of respect is how you pronounce a person's name. So I'd like for you to pronounce your name for me sure. so that I have that point of reference and I say it correctly. Okay. Uh, my name is Dr. Tolu Uraola. Uraola. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you and I, I cannot remember the moment we met. Yeah. Right. I don't I don't remember how it happened. I was trying to explain to Bonnie. I was like, she's my Internet friend. (laughs) So, Bonnie, this is my Internet friend. Nice to meet you, Bonnie. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you so much for being with us. Sure. Yeah. So I told Tramel that I looked at your website as we were kind of getting ready and um you straight up are like the most beautiful, smartest model that I've ever seen, like in the world. And so, <laughs> I was like, oh, she's, 
she's too beautiful and smart. Like, I can't talk to this woman. And she was like, no, we're going to be fine. It is too early for that, girl. <laughs> you know, y'all are gorgeous. I hope that you know that about you. yourself. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm very flattered yes, by that. You are rocking it. I love the lipstick. That's usually the color that I portray as well. But today I came here just giving you all this rawness. It's my favorite. I just feel like violet and magenta, in addition to red, but violet and magenta in those wine-colored um, tones really are good for my complexion. So, you know, like when they say when you find something that works for you, you just stick with it, stick right? With it. And so I have like every shade that you can think of from here to here of this particular color. And so anytime I go places and people are like, well, what's that color? I'm like, girl, it's like five different things. All right. So I, I wish I could tell you. This is a custom color that I can it's custom. I have to steal that. This is custom. <laughs> <laughs> No, I love it. And, you know, the thing about your Instagram feed is I don't see a lot of your face. That's true. You're not making a lot of personal appearances. That's true. I think the reason is because you are such a mirror and making Mm. people reflect on themselves Mm. in that feed. I think that's, that's probably the reason why. Because there's a lot happening. Well, you know, I'm I'm happy, but I'm also curious whether or not maybe I should be showing my face more in that space. Um, one of the reasons why I really stick to just the black and white posts with the text is that I'm hoping that the Instagram account there can serve as a resource. So I, I don't know if you've noticed that there's like these tabs on the yeah. side with like the topic. Yep. And I want it to be the kind of place where if someone's going through something, particularly Black women, because the site is aimed towards um, Black women, I want them to be able to scroll and go, okay, imposter syndrome. I'm feeling that today. What does, you know, this sister know about imposter syndrome? What about, you know, white institutional spaces? What about human resources? Just all of those different topics. I want people to be able to use it as a resource. And so I haven't personalized it that much in terms of my physical presence there. Um, I I also think that there's going to be a moment where I'm going to step away from that space. And so I don't mm-hmm. want people to get stuck on the person associated with you. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe okay. even pass it on to somebody else, right? And so I think that um, the way that you can see my personality come out the most is in the uh, in the captions and in the stories. Because I come in and I show up as the full black woman that I am, right? I use my slang. Yes. I use my you know AAVE, and I want folks to get used to the idea of a black woman who's smart, but also black, mm-hmm. right? Because for so many mm-hmm. people, those two seem like opposing concepts. And so I want people yeah, to understand. There. Yeah, mm-hmm. I want people to understand that I can come in here and be honey child and this and everything that we do. And what I'm saying is also something that's profound, is something that's accurate. It's something that's well-researched, et cetera, et cetera. So I love that. Thank you. Hey friends, I'm Tramel. If you didn't know, I run a career planning firm called TDJ Consulting. I focus on working with high achieving women and you know exactly the ones I'm talking about. She's the go-to employee, she's consistent, she's reliable, and everyone goes to her for help. It usually means that she's doing her work and theirs too, but unfortunately, her bank account doesn't reflect all the extra effort that she's putting in. I help those high achieving women leverage their wins at work 
to boost their salary by 10 to 20,000. I provide career services that build on those successes that they've already accomplished without requiring them to go back to school. If you're curious, let's talk. Schedule a free call at tdjconsulting.com. So since, since we are um, internet friends yes. and we haven't had a time to just kind of uh, express what got us to the moments where we are now, I would love to hear about your background because I, what I know of you right now is that, of course, you are running this feed on Instagram, but yes. that is only a byproduct of all the amazing things that you are doing out in the world. Yes. Right. I know that you're doing some consulting. We know that you are a lawyer. Yes. We know that you have your hands in the diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. um, world. Talk to us about the progression. How did you get there? Oh, God, that's such a, um, a good uh, question. So I'm not a practicing attorney anymore, but I did start my career off as an attorney. Uh, those first, you know, three, four years of being someone fresh out of law school, you know, had done the whole high school, undergrad, law school, you know, went through the whole school thing and being out in the world for the first time as a young black professional person. Right. And even though I loved the field, right, the actual work itself, the the writing, the being in court, um, the, uh, the arguing, the debating, all that stuff, um, I actually hated my life as a lawyer. There was something about the office politics and the conventions of those spaces that didn't agree well with me. Or, or let, me, yeah. let me put it the other yeah. way, because the other way is actually the most accurate way how it worked. There was something about me that didn't agree with those spaces. And go. so I found myself <laughs> being in those spaces where um, I think... And, you know, obviously this is only from my perspective. I've only ever lived in my body, so I don't know what other people were perceiving. But the way I perceived my experience, it was that I was this, you know, young Black woman. I'm going to go with what I've been told, so bear with me. I hate to talk about myself like this, but young, Black, attractive, uh, smart, short of herself. And for some people, that's just a lot. And I think that some of the cultural scripts around being Black and woman, I defied a lot of those scripts. And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, what people like is for folks to come into different spaces and they can easily um, peg you for what they think you are. And then whatever cultural script they feel like matches who they think you are, um, that's what they use, right? And so there are these ideas of what a Black man is or what a professional Black man is, Uh, maybe what a tall professional Black man might be, right? Maybe he was an athlete, maybe he, you know, all these different assumptions that people make about the body that you're showing up in. The boxes people want to put us in. The boxes that people want to put you in. And I think because I was this Black woman... And because of my um, African um, ethnicity, right? My, both my parents mm-hmm. are African, so I'm not African-American. I'm Nigerian-American. Um, but culturally, mm-hmm. I see myself as African-American. But I show up sure. in these spaces with these features, with this foreign name. And I think they're like, we don't know what to do with this. And so it's challenging. And when people are yeah. in that position, they don't have like this quick go-to, like that snap decision response to what they think you are, it makes it hard for them. And so, yeah, yeah I essentially got my ass kicked up and down those law firms, girl. <laughs> and it, it was hell. And um, 
I had to leave it. I had to, you know, it wasn't a matter of, well, let me leave this firm and go to another firm. Okay. You know, I don't like the culture of this particular firm. Let me leave here and go to another firm. I had been at three firms in three years. And so it wasn't anything about that unique culture. It was Mm -hmm. something about me. And anywhere I went, I knew that that was going to be coming with me. And so I decided mm-hmm. to leave it altogether. I left the profession. Um, you know, one wow. of the, the cool wow. things that um, made it easy for me to leave the profession was that I didn't have the student loans that comes with it. And so mm-hmm. many of my colleagues who had similar experiences, either, you know, as Black women or, you know, as some other identity, they felt stuck in that wow. place because they were saddled with these student loans and et cetera. And I was just, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Freedom there. And so I left the profession entirely, but you know, it's it's one of those things where um, it it becomes such a huge part of your identity. I always feel like an attorney. Mm -hmm. I still process and understand things with my attorney, you know, training. Uh, And so, you know, it's still there, but in terms of being a person who goes into a law firm every day, I know I didn't want to ever do that again. I used to wear a relaxer, right? And the minute I walked out of the last law firm, I went and got my hair cut and went back to my natural Mm -hmm. hair, right? Because that was a part of the um, performance, right? That was the part of going into these spaces and and massaging yourself into this identity that they want you to be that feels more palatable, more easy Mm -hmm. to get along with. Uh, easy to uh, make sense of. Yes, I love that too. So, and really, um, what I'm hearing from you, yeah. and I help other people hear this, right? You have identified what it is that's holding you back, yeah. and you had the bravery to get out of that. Yeah. And I really hope that people hear that. It's okay. Yeah, you can move away. Yeah, and yeah. even those women who are dealing with the burden of student loans, yeah, there is still a, a pathway for you to get out of that if you need it. So I love that you're sharing. So I hope people hear that. Thank you for elevating that because one of the things that I love about your posts is that while you recognize the challenges that come with, you know, being black, being woman, being whomever in different spaces, there's still this very optimistic outlook that you have in your post where you're like, <laughs> girl, you don't have to put up with that. Let's get you something. <laughs> Let's look at that resume. Let's fix up that resume. Let's get you somewhere, you know? And I, I love that because I think quit that job. <laughs> quit, quit that job. Quit that job. Cause I know that job is killing you. Quit that job. And there are a lot of people who are stuck in these jobs, which, I mean, you obviously can't blame them, right? Folks got bills, folks need healthcare, folks got kids, you know, these are all things that are important and they're real, right? And so, you know, I I think one of the things that people don't recognize is that you got to have a plan, you got to have a strategy, you got to have some kind of vision for what you want for yourself. And we just get so stuck again because of the student loans and because of the other obligations where we don't see that. And so I think it's so critical for internet spaces like yours that are saying, no, you can do it. There's a process, but you can do it. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that compliment. I appreciate it. Yes. I didn't know that. I got on a plane and I moved to Los Angeles. (laughs) I didn't have a plan. (laughs) I didn't have a strategy. I just needed to get out of there. Some people have, some you know? people have dreams. Yeah. Sorry. yeah, I just needed to get out of there. And so I wanted yeah. a change of scenery. 
moved to Los Angeles, probably bummed around here for like a year and then thought to myself, okay, you got to get serious about what you're going to do with yourself next, right? What's going to be your chapter two? And so, you know, I had always wanted to go into education. And so I got into teaching. Um, I taught uh, algebra to ninth graders at uh, Compton down in South wow. LA. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it, it was one of those things where, you know, people would ask me, you know, how do I compare being a lawyer to being a teacher? And, you know, I felt like there was a certain kind of rigor that came with being a lawyer, right? Because, you know, we're talking about courts, we're talking about contracts, you know, there's just so much at stake. Not that children aren't at stake, right? Not that education isn't at stake, but there's just, just this very formal system that you really have to fit into to mm-hmm. be able to perform in that mm-hmm. arena. For me, I felt like teaching was less about the rigor, even though that was important to me. It was more about resilience and um, mm. kind of like running a marathon, right? And so, you know, yeah. being a lawyer is like a sprint, right? You know, it's just this high, fast-paced thing that you're just doing, you know, day to day, and it's quick and it's going by really fast. There are these deadlines, you got filings, you have trials, you have all these things. Being a teacher, you've got these kids. And they've got these needs in addition to their educational needs. They've got these, you know, outside classroom needs. You need to show up for them in ways. You need to be able to, you know, come back every day with a smile, be able to come back every day, you Mm -hmm. know, still optimistic that you can get through Mm -hmm. today, right? You guys weren't able to grasp this concept yesterday. Let's try it again today, right? And so it was something I really loved. And I really thought that that was going to be my second career, right? And then mm-hmm. um, I had met some folks from uh, UCLA's um, urban schooling program. And I thought that what they were doing was just so cool, right? They were really, you know, in addition to giving us the tangible uh, lessons for teaching, they were also trying to reframe our thinking about how mm-hmm. to even look at these children, right? Because a lot of, you know, schooling in the United States takes this deficit lens of black and brown kids right so the idea of yeah. well they can't get it because they're bad or they can't get it because mm-hmm. they're dumb well they can't get it because their parents don't care and all of these you know um again cultural Trumps. scripts right these mm-hmm. cultural yeah. scripts that many of us buy into because that's all we're we're taught and we go into those classes and we have these negative impacts on kids because if you don't see them as children with futures, with possibilities, yeah. who have the potential, how, what good is your teaching, right? What good is your teaching? What good are, is your lesson plan yeah. if you're not seeing these kids, right? And so I was like, yeah. girl, what's this? I, I want to do that, <laughs> right? I was like, what is that? I want to be a part of that. And so I was encouraged to apply <laughs> to the PhD program at UCLA's um, Graduate School of Education. I got in. And um, I worked on my doctorate for the next seven years. And in the process Mm -hmm. of working on my doctorate, that's where I got that really formal, rigorous training around race and racism and institutions and bias. And I just think that it was not only the best education that I ever got. For me, it was actually transformational to be able to get the kind of training that, you know, because we have our lived, we have our lived experiences. A lot of us know how to articulate what those experiences look like, but I don't know if people really understand that there are several different academic disciplines that are committed to making sense, right? To looking at the research, to creating uh, empirical uh, data around these experiences, right? And so, you know, there's this sense that 
Well, I know race. I know how to talk about race. I have a race. I got a race. I can talk about race. And it's not like that, right? It's a lot more academic than that, right? And it's, it's not to say that it diminishes or minimizes people's experiences, but it's also to say that just as seriously as we take medicine or physics, we have to take these fields that look at race and racism and exclusion and all of these different processes within our society that create the type of uh, marginalized groups and produce the types of outcomes that we see among marginalized groups. After I left UCLA, I knew that I didn't want to go the normal uh, tenure track route, essentially because my daughter was like, um, that thing that you do, I don't like that. You need to play with me. And I knew that if I did the <laughs> tenure track thing, that I wouldn't have the kind of time to be present for my kid the way she needed me. And so I decided to go the nonprofit route because I figured, you know, if I can do the nine to five thing, I can be a lot present for my daughter. And I really lucked up on being able to get a position with an excellent nonprofit where I learned quite a bit about coalitions, communities, um, community building, movement building. And so for me, it was like an extension of the education that I got at UCLA around race, right? Wow. Because now we're going from, you know, the ivory tower to actually seeing what it looks like in practice, right? What in, fighting yeah. against racism and uh, creating policy change and, you know, policy shifts around some of the interests that we're passionate about, making those changes, seeing the societal, the societal differences that we want to see seeing that actually happen in real time, right? Grassroots organizing, um, relationships with elected officials and et cetera. After that, and this was around the time of George Floyd, and I think it felt like the perfect time for me to get back to looking at race and organizations because there I was looking at race from a more policy standpoint. And I think that this was a, a really strange roundabout way of addressing what I had experienced in my time as an attorney. Racism at work, bias, uh, whether it's sexism or racism, as a person who lives in a body that's both Black and female, I experienced both. And being able to bring my lived experience to this work as a practitioner, looking at equity uh, within organizations. So that's the, the long and short of how I got here. <laughs> it's so funny that you kind of hit points that Bonnie and I are both either working in the past or working currently with, we're both mothers. Oh, Our daughters are actually friends. And oh, um, we both worked in a nonprofit. That's where we met. Okay, We worked with foster youth, um, providing them services that the state provided after, well, during their care and then after their care. Okay, So a lot of the same things that you're talking about in the education system, in, in policy, all these things we saw yeah. as a part of our workday. Yeah. Um, we had probably the most passionate team. All of us were very focused on making sure that the, the kids yeah. were getting what they needed. So yeah. I, I hear you. And it really did kind of shape us into leaving there mm -hmm. and taking a part of that advocacy with us into whatever yeah. it is that we did next. Yeah. So for, for Bonnie, the work that she's doing as a therapist, I believe that you know, some of those notes come from the fact that we were able to be huge advocates Yes, and we were able to take all those tropes. The people are trying to put people in boxes yes. and say, you don't have to be in that box here. Yeah. Right. And then for me working with the career planning field, I had to change my title because mm. people heard career coach mm. and all they heard was resume. Yeah. 
And for me, it's about what happens after you Mm. submit that application? What happens after you get the job? There's still so much that you are grappling with internally that you aren't even talking about. Yeah. And who is the person that you go to for that? Yeah. It's me. Yeah. But you don't know it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I love how you literally have taken all of your experiences yeah. and kind of melded them into something 100%. that you feel is a viable situation. 100%. So you've kind of already talked about our issue, race in the workplace. Yeah. And your personal lived experience with that. And you've kind of already talked a little bit about what, you know, people are experiencing. Can you talk to me about how are you tackling that today? What is it that you're offering now to kind of deal with what's happening with race in the workplace, with diversity and inclusion? Yeah. So, you know, a good deal of my work definitely includes, you know, facilitating trainings and workshops to, you know, bring people into awareness of, you know, racism, that racism also takes place within workspaces, right? Uh, I think, you know, there's often this misconception that um, schools or organizations or, you know, different spaces are somehow uh, separate from the society, <laughs> right? That we we walk into these well, spaces. That's where it's professional. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, right? So there's this like this myth and this illusion that somehow these spaces are um, aren't susceptible to what's happening mm-hmm. outside its doors, right? Which couldn't be further from the truth, right? And so, like I said, you know, yeah, there people are these... talk about it as though it is past tense. Yeah, those things aren't happening. Anymore. Yeah. When... Literally, that's where it's being. You know, there's this researcher. I think she says something like organizations don't operate outside of society. They operate within society. Right. And so the Mm -hmm. same types of harms that we see happening are happening within those walls. Right. It just looks different. And so the key to going into these spaces is being able to name these different harms that people of color face within these spaces. It might not look like, you know, physical violence, but there are these different forms of violence that take place within these spaces that often people struggle to name, awful people struggle Mm -hmm. to uh, even acknowledge that they're happening there, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in addition to bringing awareness to those harms and, you know, figuring out ways, you know, strategies, how to kind of shift the culture, Um, you know, make the changes needed to create a space that's a lot more welcoming for all types of people, uh, whether it be based on race, gender, uh, neurotype, um, disability, uh, sexuality, all of those different identities that we bring to these spaces. In addition to trying to make these spaces more comfortable, my job is to come in and try to pinpoint some of the issues that are unique to this specific space, right? Because even though there are a lot of these, you know, commonplace behaviors that happen to a lot of us everywhere. Every organization has its own dynamic and has its own culture. So being able to pinpoint who are the actors who are perpetuating some of the problems in this space? What are some of the unique issues in this space that are problematic and that make certain students or uh, staff feel um, unwelcome in these spaces? And so that's the fun part about the work for me, that I get to come into this space. I bring my lens as a researcher and the curiosity that comes with being a researcher to say, okay, hmm, let's start from zero. Because I want to be able to give you guys a baseline reading of where you are now so that we can talk about 
how to get to the goals that we're looking to get to, right? And can you tell me who is your target audience for the the consulting that you're doing? Yeah. So um, often my target audience is organizational leaders, right? They're the ones who do the hiring of the consultants. But at the end of the day, in terms of the educating and bringing awareness, the audience is everybody, right? Because even those of us who are people of color, who have these experiences, and we know that we're having these experiences, sometimes we struggle to name them, right? So being able to uh, give folks the language and also give folks the voice to be able to say, this mm-hmm. is what happens to me in this place. And so sometimes That's you so need that powerful. safe container of having a facilitator in that space to be able to express those kinds of things. Because I mean, I'm sure you can imagine how precarious it is for people to be in a space that's already hostile. Folks are terrified of talking about their experiences. Besides the fact that often we have no training, we have no uh, idea where to start. But the consequences and the implications of speaking out and being honest about what's happening to you in those places is hugely scary. And so I think that in addition to creating the kind of space for people to learn, it's also creating the kind of space for people to speak. Mm -hmm. You're really giving people room for their voices to be heard. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like what I hear a lot from clients in session is about mm. just validating, right? Yeah. Like, yes, yeah. what what you're describing to me is a microaggression or it's yeah. racism and this is not okay. You're not imagining it, yeah. right? Like exactly. your experience is real and you, yeah, you need permission yeah. almost to kind of talk about it. You mm-hmm. know, that that's why I created the Fearless and Formidable Instagram account because I, I feel like people need a spa- the space to be able to see that you are not making this up. This is really happening to you. And let me tell you how I know it's really Mm -hmm. happening to you because it happened to me, right? And then to see other sisters come in and chime in and talk about their own experiences or the fact that it resonates for them, I think it's really validating and it's important because I think when you are uh, fresh out of college or fresh out of, you know, graduate school, med school, you know, dental school, whatever, you don't know that this is a thing, right? I mean, I think you have like this vague understanding that institutions are racist, but you don't know precisely the way that racism gets enacted on you because it's subtle. Mm. It's subtle. Yeah. And so being able to say, yeah, that icky feeling that you had, oh, sis, you're not imagining that. That really happened. Hey, podcast listener, this is Bonnie jumping in on this little break in the action to talk to you about advertising opportunities uh, for this season of the podcast. So, you know, my business, Mindful Kindness Counseling, is really proud to support this podcast and these conversations, both with my time, but also financially. And Tramel and I want you to know that we are open to your advertising needs as well. So if you're interested in funding a spot on the podcast, please feel free to contact us at workandwellnesspodcast at gmail.com. Bye. There was a post that you did and it was um, a recapture of a video And the young lady was talking about how she had worked at this organization and she looked around and was the only person of color. She hadn't really noticed it before. Mm. Um, She noticed that people were getting shifts of their preference. And when she asked about shifts of her preference, she wasn't being given that. 
And so she didn't want to think the worst of it. She tried her best to kind of go with the flow. Isn't that what we do? Mm-hmm. Go with the flow. And, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. I'm just going to keep asking. Um, I'm sure it's it's not what I may think it is. Yeah. Right? And then it wasn't until a friend of hers came to her and said, hey, man, uh, I think the reason why this is happening is racism. Yeah. And she was like, oh, yeah. And so she, you know, went back and she didn't call them out. Yeah. In in the the form of racism, but what she said was, "Hey, you know, I'm noticing a lot of people are getting the shifts mm-hmm. that I'm asking for. I've got somebody who's happy to share, who's happy to switch with me. Mm-hmm. Um, can we make that happen?" And the person said, "No." And then after that, the backlash was that she was no longer on the schedule. Yeah. And that's how they that's how they do it, right? They don't tell you you fired. They yeah. just Oh, three weeks has gone by and we just haven't had a, a space for you in the yeah. schedule. And it wasn't until months had gone by, two two months had gone by. I couldn't believe that she said this. She yeah. said two months had passed. Yeah. And she went back and said, you know, am I fired? Because you guys haven't been putting me on the schedule. It's been two months. Mm-hmm. Listen, two days go by in the schedule. Y'all done. <laughs> All right. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> but two months. So what that tells me is people are out here experiencing things and doing their very best to tell themselves it's not what I think it is. I like to think of it as like the dust Mm. that accumulates Mm -hmm. because you, you don't realize something is dusty until time has passed, right? Maybe, maybe you're supposed to dust every Saturday. You know, the first Saturday of the month, you had a date. So you went out, okay? Yeah. And then maybe the second Saturday, you know, you didn't dust because you were tired and you yeah. needed to rest. And then the mm-hmm. third Saturday comes along, you're like, oh my goodness, that is a thick level of dust. What have I for- I forgot all about, you know, taking um, time to make sure this was being cleaned up as it accumulated. Mm-hmm. And I believe that racism is the same way. Mm-hmm. People have gotten really good at having these itty bitty subtleties that mm-hmm. they ha- they can um, easily explain away. Mm-hmm. And so that they don't feel impactful around other people, yeah. but they do to the person who is experiencing them. But the person experiencing them does not feel like they have a big enough case with that one little piece of dust and so they move on and as it accumulates they haven't kept the tally yeah they haven't kept up with all of the things so then one day it is just the smallest possible speck of dust that lands on an entire pile and now they have issue and nobody understands why so if there are people you literally just defined microaggressions you literally yes. just did that. I have to steal that um, metaphor because it's perfect. I kid you not. That's literally what a, what a microaggression is. It's just the everyday commonplace interactions, the subtle slights, the subtle yep. insults, and they're so small by themselves that you can't say yes. anything about it, right? Mm-hmm. But they add up and add mm-hmm. up and add yes. up. Mm-hmm. So the, the two things that we want to make sure that we offer our listeners is we want to be able to not only call out the stuff that's happening for people, Mm -hmm. give them space to hear um, the resources and the kinds of conversations that are probably happening in their, in their text box. Yeah. Right. 
and so that they see that these are real things. But we also want to make sure that we're giving them the opportunity to hear some type of solutions. So we really want to give in every episode some semblance of a short-term solution yeah. and a long-term solution. We know everybody can't fix everything yeah. with the snap of the finger. It just doesn't work like that. But we also understand that there has to be something to kind of kickstart um, some change for them. So for you, if I am a um, a, a top-level decision maker in my yeah. organization and I'm seeing that there's some things I, I myself need to kind of stop this ship and move it around, what would you identify as one the short-term solution, yeah. and then two, what would be the long-term solution for that person? So I think that when it comes to um, the organizational side of things, because, you know, part of the way I look at the work that I'm doing here is there's the organizational facing piece of my work, and there is the person, people of color facing aspect of the work, Right. And so yes. the DEI work that I do out in the field as a consultant, I'm working with the organizational facing piece of the work. But Fearless and Formidable, mm-hmm. that is the space where I'm talking directly to Black women and other yes. people of color and saying, look, sis, I see you. You know, these are some of the things that we need to talk about. So when we talk about the um, the, person fa- the person facing part of the work, you know, I think that we have to be honest in understanding that there is that power imbalance, right? The corporations are the ones that have the job, right? They're the ones that have the money. They're the ones Mm -hmm. that do the decision-making. And so what kind of strategies can we put in place, right? And so, you know, like we talked about earlier in the discussion with, you know, your approach to the work that you do is you don't have to stay at that job. You do not have to stay at that job, right? And so there's the how to navigate these spaces conversation, And then there's the how to get out of these spaces and navigate, getting into a space that is more aligned with who you are, right? So I think, you know, that that's the conversation we're talking about folks, women, um, um, folks who might have a disability, you know, any marginalized identity. That's the conversation that you have. Yes. When it comes to um, top level executives, I think that, you know, some of the short term solutions look like. I think the first thing any organization needs to be able to do in order to make the kinds of changes that they want to make is they have to make a commitment. They have to make a commitment that, hey, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, anti-racism, belonging, these types of things are institutional priorities. And they have to take it seriously. And they have to lead by example. And so in terms of short-term solutions, I think that's a perfect place to start. Um, I think another um, one of the short-term solutions I often give when it comes to these spaces is you have to bring in the professionals who are here to expose these different um, practices, the policies that drive them, uh, the cultural norms that, you know, normalize this kind of behavior within these spaces. Um, The people who are perpetuating the behavior, you have to be able to expose all that and get that to the fore, right? And so being able to bring someone in who is who has specialized training in doing that kind of work, I think that's another um, important uh, short-term step. Um, I think committing the resources needed to get 
the different types of programming off the ground is important. Um, and I think also um, accountability is super important mm. in this conversation. Mm. You can say that one more time um, really <laughs> clearly for the, the folks in the back <laughs> for us. I would appreciate it. One more time. Over yes, ma'am. So it's committing to anti-racism, DEI, and belonging. It's bringing in professionals. It's committing the resources. And it's taking accountability. Taking accountability yes. is really yeah. key here. Because if racism is just happening to people... It, if racism is just happening to people, but nobody's doing the racism, how'd that work? <laughs> how'd that work, right? We have to be able to locate how this happens, right? Who's doing it? And often I think that, you know, part of why it gets so difficult is that um, it's often invisible. It's often yes. uh, unspoken. It's often subtle. It's mm -hmm. often unintentional. And so being able to educate folks about, yeah, I know you thought that this was harmless, but it isn't, right? Mm -hmm. And so making sure that you have whatever types of accountability structures in place for people to be able to have the conversations, to be able to bring to you that, hey, this is a thing that happens here and it's not working for us. Exactly. You have to have that container of accountability to be able to bring in the type of programming that you need. Um, have the types of conversations that need to be had, identify um, the spaces that need to be built up, the supports, the resources, and et cetera, right? Be sure to check out the show notes for more information on how to connect with and follow Dr. Tolu Ruraola.